Let us turn to the book of Isaiah chapter 40. The book of Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, and we will be reading from the verse number 18. Isaiah 40, reading from the verse number 18. To whom then will ye liken God, or what likeness will ye compare unto him? The workman melteth a graven image, and the goldsmith spreadeth it over with gold, and casteth silver chains. He that is so impoverished that he hath no oblation, chooseth a tree that will not rot. He seeketh unto him a cunning workman to prepare a graven image that shall not be moved. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Hath it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain, and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in, that bringeth the princes to nothing. He maketh the judges of the earth as vanity. Yea, they shall not be planted. Yea, they shall not be sown. Yea, their stock shall not take rot in the earth. And he shall also blow upon them, and they shall wither, and the whirlwind shall take them away as stubble. To whom then will ye liken me, or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high, and behold, who hath created these things, that bringeth out their hosts by number. He calleth them all by names, by the greatness of his might, for that he is strong in power, not one faileth. Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speakest to Israel? My way is hid from the Lord, and my judgment is passed over from my God. Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard, that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary, there is no searching of his understanding. He giveth power to the faint, and to them that have no might, he increaseth strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Amen. We know that God will bless His Word to our hearts. Following on from our studies in Ezekiel, looking at the revival pictures from that prophet, I started to think of Isaiah and the subject of revival. And so we're going to begin a series of seven lessons looking at revival from the book of Isaiah. The lessons are different in that Ezekiel saw the subject through these great and wonderful visions, but Isaiah presents simple texts, memorable texts, texts that we know so well, verses that have so much to teach us with regard to this subject. And today we're going to think about the prayer for revival from Isaiah 40 and the verse 31. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. 
I'm just going to begin with a quote. I want you to think about these words. There is no doubt that we have been living on the capital of the past. As you go around this country and look at the congregations, you will see that very quickly. You can carry on for a certain length of time and tradition and by custom and habit, but the point is bound to come when you cease to have any capital left, and then you realize that you're facing something absolutely ultimate, something which is fundamental. The problem confronting us is the need of life itself, the need of that fundamental power and vigor in every activity of the church, which really can make an impact upon the world and do something vital and drastic with regard to the whole trend of affairs at the present time, the need of life, the need of power, the need of the Spirit itself. There are times in the life of the church when what is needed is some form of line or adjustment here or there, but that is not the trouble today. That is not a, this is not a minor matter. It is not a third-rate or fourth-rate matter that is in the balance at the moment. It is the whole life of the church. It is the whole question of a spiritual outlook upon life over and against anything that is represented in the world. And those words were spoken by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And as you read those words, strikes me they're right up to date. They could just as easily have been written yesterday. And I'm sure we agree that the need is probably more profound today than it was in 1959 when Martin Lloyd-Jones said those things. Look around you, he said. Look at the congregations. Look at the flocks of God's people living in the capital of the past, living in past blessings. They're in existence because God has blessed in the past, but where's the blessing today? Where's the growth today? Where's the souls being saved today? Where's the work being done today? We're living because the work was done yesterday. And what is needed is not just some minor change. There needs to be a transformation. Something radical has to happen. The power of the Spirit must come down if there's going to be a church tomorrow. Martin Lloyd-Jones spoke those words as part of a series of sermons that he preached to mark the century since the 1859 revival. That's why those sermons were preached in 1959. And as I pointed out on Sunday, the time has long gone since there was last a significant awakening in this country. Why is Isaiah so significant when it comes to revival? What is important about Isaiah's prophecy where revival is concerned? Well, I think in the last section of the book of Isaiah, the last section of the book of Isaiah begins at chapter 40 here. In this last section, there are two major themes. One theme is Christ, the servant of Jehovah, the one whom we see in Isaiah 53. And he is revealed over and over, and his ministry is revealed by prophecy. And for that reason, Isaiah is often called the evangelical prophet because of the way in which he presents Christ, the way in which he presents the gospel. But the other theme is the theme of revival. Now, why was revival so important? Now, Isaiah was different from Ezekiel. Ezekiel lived in Babylon. He was a captive. So, yes, the people needed to see revival in his day because they were in captivity and they needed to be brought back to their homeland again. But Isaiah lived a long time before the captivity. 
But Isaiah foresaw a day when Israel would be in captivity. He saw the decline. He saw the declension. His ministry was a very long ministry. His ministry began during the days of King Uzziah. He was called actually the year that King Uzziah died. So he saw the reign of King Uzziah. And his reign probably finished in Manasseh's. His, his ministry probably finished in Manasseh's reign. Um, we don't know that for sure, but the Jews have this tradition that Isaiah was actually sawn in half during the persecutions under the wicked king Manasseh. And whenever the apostle Paul was writing about the heroes of faith, he did talk about those that were sawn asunder. He saw revival. He saw the revival under Hezekiah, but he also saw the wickedness under Hezekiah's father, King Ahaz. So he saw everything. He saw apostasy. He saw revival. He saw times of blessing when the tide came in, but he also saw times when the tide went out. But in later years, whenever the children of Israel would go into captivity, they could look back to Isaiah, and they could see great lessons, lessons of encouragement, teaching them that God had not yet finished with his people, that when the times were dark, the light would come again, and that when everything seemed to be dry and barren, desperate, he would grant rivers in the desert, and the dry and thirsty land would be replenished. But Isaiah's prophecy of revival isn't merely for Israel. It is for the New Testament church, because what Isaiah saw was the coming of Christ. And what Isaiah saw was the Messiah. And what Isaiah saw was the New Testament age. And therefore, Isaiah's ministry looks forward to the New Testament and to the outpouring of God's Spirit upon all flesh. And so, Isaiah has a special resonance for the New Testament, possibly more than any other of the prophets. It is a strange thing. I've often wondered uh, about this, but there's 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah, and Isaiah is like a, is like a mini Bible. For the last 27 chapters are so full of Christ, and of course, there's 27 books in the, in the New Testament. There's something about Isaiah that parallels the teaching of the Scriptures. Isaiah begins with that vision of Israel as a diseased, and, uh, a diseased body full of wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. That's how it all begins. It begins with sin, but then it ends with a new heaven and a new earth. It ends with a glorious vision. So, you see the whole teaching of the Scriptures in this prophet, and yes, we're going to take this theme out of it. We're going to look at it the theme of revival. And revival is what we do need. Martin Lloyd-Jones was right. We cannot be without revival. The church must have revival. And we must believe that there is a promise for revival, that the Bible is a revival book and that God is a revival God. And if we don't believe such things, then there is no hope for us. For where is our hope of survival? Save in thy life, giving breath. And so tonight we're going to think about the prayer for revival from this verse 31, presenting the prayer for revival. And the first thing we're going to notice is the weariness with which the prayer for revival is presented. Whenever we think of the prayer for revival, you might think of a passionate prayer. 
a prayer that is full of vigor and energy, a prayer that assails the courts of heaven. But the people that are praying here are a weary people. They are a tired people. They're done out. Because you look at the previous verse, even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall, but they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. The people described as being weak here are the young men. Young people are full of energy, full of energy for work, full of energy for leisure as well, for sport and for games. Young people have so much energy. But young people too get tired. Those who are the the strongest and the fittest of humanity, they grow tired. And what Isaiah is telling us here, the very best that man has to offer is not enough. You know, we plan, we organize, we work. But the best that we do, without the intervention of God's Spirit, it'll not be enough. We'll just wear us out. And we'll achieve so little. At our very best, the Lord said, we're unprofitable servants. The Apostle Paul, and I was thinking about him and how he talked about the things that wore him down. The Apostle Paul talked about not being weary in well-doing. Doing the best of work for the Lord. You can be weary in that work. Tired, disillusioned. On occasions, we become tired as a result of illness or some form of incapacity, something going on in our lives that we have no control over. Paul talked about his thorn in the flesh. He called it the messenger of Satan that was sent to buffet him. He prayed and he prayed again and again, Lord, take this away. And the Lord didn't take it away. And he, he had to bear it. And he found it hard. At times, we grow weary because of people around us, people that we would expect encouragement from. It's often a mistake we make. We, we put people on some sort of pinnacle and we think we're going to get help from them and the help doesn't always be there because we all make mistakes. We're, we're not what we ought to be. Everyone around us is the same, just as we are like that. Paul suffered from that kind of thing as well. He mourned over Peter's failure to support the Gentiles at Galatia. He withstood Peter to the face. Would have liked to have been a fly in the wall in that meeting. John Mark's abandonment of the work. And then Barnabas sided with John Mark because he was his nephew in the first great missionary partnership in history. It fell apart because of one young man who forsook the Lord's work and caused division amongst the Lord's servants. You have Hymenaeus and Alexander's apostasy. He wrote to Timothy about those two men. I wonder who they were. And then there was Demas. The very end, he said, Demas hath forsaken me. He has loved this present evil world. Paul suffered from discouragements because of others. But there is a greater problem that produces even more acute weariness in the work of God. Our own sins, our own failings, our own inconsistencies, they're there. And we think about all of this and we look at it in the light of the, the powerlessness of the church today, the helplessness of the church. The church of Christ is not what she could be. She's like a great sleeping giant, capable of great things. 
but yet doing so little. And we are constrained to believe that prayer for revival is the only answer. We must have His power. We can talk about the things that the, the church needs. Talk about the need for souls. Talk about the need for the church to have more younger people. Talk about the need of the church to have a greater holiness or a greater vision or larger prayer meetings or, or more spirit in the prayer meetings. We can talk about all of those things, and yes, we need all of those things. But ultimately, all of those things will be solved when God's Spirit steps in. And those things will not be solved by the technology, no matter how useful it is. Those things will not be solved by the giving of God's people, even though the giving of God's people is wonderful and remarkable and sacrificial, and we thank God for it. But without the power of God's Spirit, everything that we do will be touched with failure. That's why the Lord said, without me, you can do nothing. And there he talked about the vine. I am the vine, he said, and you're the branches. And you think of a tree, and the trunk of the tree, and the roots go into the ground, and then you have the branches. And what is it that keeps the branches alive? It is the sap that the tree produces with the nourishment it gains from the ground. And the sap flows into every part of the tree. That's where the power is. And so it is, we're joined to Christ. And the sap of the Holy Spirit is drawn from Christ and goes out into every part of the vine. And we will only be fruitful as we have the Spirit of God. And therefore, we must pray for revival. And we can grow weary and we can grow tired. And our prayers can seem so frail, but let us hold on. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Let's also think about the person to whom the prayer for revival is presented. Who is the person that the prayer is presented to? How is he described? Well, just look at verse 26. Lift up your eyes on high. Lift up your eyes. Look upward. Don't look downward. Don't look around. Look up. And behold, who hath created these things, that bringeth out their host by number? He calleth them all by names, by the greatness of his might, for that he is strong in power, not one faileth. He says in verse 28, Have you not known, have you not heard, that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary? There is no searching of his understanding. This is the God that we have. Isaiah chapter 40 is one of the, the greatest chapters of God's Word for expounding the person of God, who He is. He is not some idol that sits there, who is unmoved, who never feels, who never acts, sits there looking pretty. That's not our God. He sits upon the circle of the earth. He looks down. The inhabitants of the world are just grasshoppers in His sight. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain. He spreadeth them like a tent to dwell in. What a sight that is. What a, an image of God in verse 22. He just spreads out the heavens. You look above at the heavens and the sky. God has just stretched them out. And we're just tent dwellers living within the curtains that God has fashioned. This is the God that we have. We have no need to be afraid. We have no need to be concerned. We have a great God that we can intercede with tonight. 
And whatever the need of your heart is, whatever the burden that's pressing upon your soul, whatever the anxiety that's crushing upon your mind, we have a God in heaven who is our God. A God to whom we are bound in covenant engagement. And I suppose that is one theme we'll come back to over and over because Israel had a covenant engagement with God. God would not forget them. And neither will the Lord forget us. Let's also think about the patience with which the prayer for revival is presented. But they that wait upon the Lord. Waiting upon the Lord. There's a great Old Testament description of prayer, waiting. Why does God talk about waiting? Why is prayer waiting? Waiting is a very passive thing, isn't it? And yet, it takes fortitude to wait. It takes great patience to wait. It takes a certain character to wait. But yet, when you wait, you're actually doing nothing. You're just waiting. Waiting is an expectant thing. Whenever you wait for something, you're waiting for that parcel to arrive. You're waiting in the queue for whatever's at the other end of the queue. You're waiting because you know it's worthwhile waiting. If you didn't believe that there wasn't something worth waiting for, you wouldn't wait. So waiting in itself is an act of faith. And we think about all of that. God deliberately expects us to be a waiting people. Prayer is not some kind of a microwave oven where you put your requests in, you press the button, and suddenly the answers spin out. That's not prayer. Prayer is about waiting for God to act in His time, believing the promises, claiming the promises, but trusting all the while. And though the promise is not fulfilled, at the moment, we think it ought to be fulfilled. We have to accept that we are not God, and that God is His plan. God is His scheme. God is His timetable. God is His calendar. And a thousand years with the Lord is one day, and one day is a thousand years, and our puny ways of reckoning time, that's not how God sees things. And so, we have to step into the very plan of God as we wait, cry unto Him, plead with Him, expecting anticipating, full of faith, yet at the same time have a heart of passion, knowing that this sovereign God, He really cares, and He really will act, and He really will send the revival in His time. They that wait upon the Lord so often, we can be consumed with our busyness, rushing about, doing, thinking, planning, scheming, working, laboring, getting tired, getting weary, and we've forgotten to wait and that's why times of silence are so good in our lives. Times for meditating. Times for opening God's Word. Times for thinking it through. Times for seeking God. Set times for prayer. Times for coming to God's house. Coming to the prayer meeting. In the silence of it all. Alone with our thoughts before God. Sitting at the Lord's table. The quietness of that time. Meditating upon Calvary. Waiting upon God, trusting, obeying, praying, waiting. It's a skill, the skill to wait upon God. It's the hardest skill of all. Our spirituality is really tested by 
are waiting. No one sees the waiting spirit. No one sees the waiting heart. No one sees your closet and my closet, but God sees. And that's how we really are before a holy God. When the door is closed, there we know what it is to seek Him. The patience with which the prayer for revival is presented. But then, finally, let's think about the faith with which the prayer for revival is presented. What comes at the end of the waiting? They that wait, well, there's, there's a number of promises here. Let's just look at them. First of all, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Renew their strength. The Hebrew word specifies the, the changing of the strength, the transforming of the strength. Through his thorn in the flesh, Paul learned something. The Lord came to him and he said, Paul, I'm not going to take that thorn away. That thorn has left you physically weak. But when you are weak, I am strong. You have to trust in my strength. And my grace is sufficient for you. And Paul was a better man because of that thorn. It was the strength of God that counted. And revival is the visitation of the power and the strength of the Holy Spirit upon the church. The outpouring of the Spirit upon the church. The church receiving a strength that is not of man. A strength that's not about our talents or our commitment. A strength that is of God Himself. And without that strength, we'll achieve nothing. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. But those that wait acknowledge their weakness. They wait because they know they are weak. They wait because they sense their weakness, sense their impoverishment. Give me this power, Lord. Is that where our heart is? And then we have the mounting up on eagles' wings. They will mount up with wings as eagles. And this describes the spiritual place where revival takes place as the church comes under the influence of the Holy Spirit. The church rises above the world and above sin. The church rises into a place with God that is totally different. Transported into the presence of God Himself. When heaven comes down and glory fills the soul. In one of my favorite books, well, outside of the scripture, I would say it's my favorite book, Memories of a Wayfaring Man by the Reverend Murdoch Campbell. The author describes encounters with God in a chapter entitled The People Near to Him. He reflects upon his ministry upon godly people that he knew. He talks about one old woman that he met. He went into the home, she was sitting there by the fire. He said the fire burned, but there was another fire burning, and the fire was burning in her heart. And as the fire burned in her heart, the fire burned in his heart. And she talked about a time when God drew near. He asked the question, what was your most precious moment with God? He said, she said, God, God, God drew near. And she said that she couldn't tell whether she was in the body or out of the body, like Paul and she wasn't aware of her surroundings, where she was. None of that mattered. 
what time of the day it was, what date it was, what time it was. It didn't matter. God was all in all. And, and then he looked at her and he got a bit excited and he said, how long did this experience last? For me, time ceased to be. God came. Now, it's very wrong to preach a person's experience and say, you must have that experience, I must have that experience. God leads different people in different ways. Always dangerous to preach an experience as being necessary, but there is a deeper walk with God that I haven't known. That's the lesson. We need to know what it is. To mount up with wings as eagles. To rise above the cares of this life and to the presence of God himself. And that's a challenge, but it's also a promise. For they that wait upon the Lord shall mount up with wings as eagles. The third promise of revival in this remarkable text relates to the strength for the journey. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Here we see purpose, running, a direction, walking. You're going someplace. It's not just about going up into the heavenlies. We need that. But we also need to be down on the earth, running and walking, serving and striving. And we need to be able to do God's work and not be weary. We need to be able to do God's work without fainting. And where can we find such strength? Only through the Spirit. But they that wait upon the Lord shall run and not be weary, shall walk and not faint. The energy is not ours, it's His. The strength is not ours, it's His. The work is not ours, it's His. And we can only do God's work in His strength or we fail. The real lesson here is surrender, isn't it? The waiting upon the Lord is a spirit of surrender. Total surrender to the will of God. George Matheson wrote, Make me a captive, Lord, then I shall be free. Force me to render up my sword, and I shall conquer or be. I sink in life's alarms when by myself I stand. Imprison me within thine arms, and strong shall be my hand. His power, his power alone. May the Lord bless us as we come to pray now, for Christ's sake. Let's wait upon the Lord for prayer.